Coyote Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. Simon Helfon has been designing artwork since the 1980s, starting out at Stiff Records and then assisting Neville Brody before setting up London and LA design studios in the 90s. Long-standing clients included the late George Michael, Oasis, and Paul Weller. He creates international campaigns for global acts and continues his work with iconic artists, most recently collaborating for the third time with Sir Peter Blake for The Who's latest record, and working once again with Noel Gallagher on the High Flying Birds' best of Back the Way We Came. In the mid-1990s, Simon had started to take an interest in the film industry, inspired by friendships forged during his time in L.A. He produced his first feature film in 2008, the Kenneth Branagh-directed Sleuth, which was to become the last screenplay for Harold Pinter, and starred Michael Caine and Jude Law. But it wasn't until 2016 that Simon really embraced the film world when the Gallagher brothers approached him to tell the story of Oasis. As lead producer, he brought together the team to create the award-winning feature Supersonic, a documentary of huge commercial and critical success. Simon curated the Sunday Times bestseller Supersonic, the complete, uncut and authorized interviews, working closely with Noel and Liam on this project. The many hours of interviews carried out for the documentary were transcribed and compiled to create a stunning 400-page companion piece to the film, which is now available in paperback. Screenwriting came next, with Simon's first attempt, Greenlit, a comedy drama series, All You Need Is Me, tells the story of an unsigned indie rock band from London who make it big in the States. The story mirrors Simon's own time living in LA, where he was pivotal in securing a little-known London band a record deal. The band Bush went on to sell 8 million copies of their debut album in the US alone. Simon executive produced the series for ITVX and enlisted feature director Simon Abaud to direct. The summer of 2023 saw the release of the highly anticipated documentary Wham, produced by Simon alongside Academy Award-winning filmmaker John Batsek and directed by multi-award-winning director Chris Smith. The film charts George and Andrew's meteoric four-year journey from leaving school to playing their final gig at Wembley Stadium in 1986. This feature-length documentary has been released globally by Netflix. Up next on Slapsvant, we've got Simon Helfon. Where do we find you in the world? How are you doing? And what's happening in your life? You find me in northwest London. Things are pretty good. You know, the summer's coming to an end. Even as we speak, the weather's turned here from being in the 30s for the last week. Early 30s, now we're down to the 20s. So I think we're heading into awesome. You know, work's pretty busy with one thing and another. I've just come off the back of um, this Wham! documentary, which... It's just been on Netflix, or oh, it is on Netflix, it's just been on Netflix. It yep. was released on Netflix in July, and so we've had a, a you know, great summer with that because the reaction to the film has been fantastic, and it's really kind of struck a note with fans, new and old, young and old, really seems to have hit the spot. Yep. And so I've been thrilled with the kind of the reaction and, and the viewers, and the amount of viewers that we've had. It's been fantastic. Yeah, so we're just kind of finishing, as I say, enjoying, basking in that, if you yes. like, and then got a few things that i'm developing to try and follow on from that let's rewind 
to your very beginning in the entertainment industry and your journey. So at what age did you think, cool, I want to be in the entertainment entertainment world or business, and how did that journey progress to where we are today? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think I was always a little bit, you know, I, I love that kind of world of show business and grew up sort of watching all those kind of Hollywood movies and Hollywood musicals on a Saturday afternoon and, you know, kind of, I, I guess I had that sort of bug very early on and that kind of transferred into music when I was a teenager. And I think by the time I left university prematurely, shall we say, I was only there for a year. And when I came out of, well, finished that year, I knew that I wanted to work in for a record company or in music. I didn't know, I wasn't qualified to do anything, but I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And I was a big fan of The Clash. And they were still a going concern then. And I bumped into this guy called Cosmo Vinyl. Was, Cosmo was the kind of right-hand man to the Clash. Okay. And I'd seen him at gigs, and he was this kind of larger-than-life character. And I bumped into him in Oxford Street and kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said, hi, you know, and we got chatting for a, just a few minutes. But mm. out of that conversation, he happened to mention that he was working out of Stiff Records. And um, Stiff Records was a record company, one of the first independent record companies, new wave punk uh, labels. And I loved that label anyway. I used to pop in there on my way back from school and get, they used to give you free badges and free posters. And that label was the home of kind of, uh, who was it? Ian Jury and the Blockheads, Elvis mm-hmm. Costello back then, and The Damned, to name many others. But they were a really cool label. Anyhow, he happened to mention that he was working out of their offices. So when I left university, as I said, albeit prematurely, I thought, well, I'm going to go and work work in the music business. And, and, and I'm connected. I know Cosmo. <laughs> so uh, um, I took myself down to Stiff Records, which was in a kind of... Ca- in an old black taxi cab office. That's where okay. their offices were, above a taxi garage in West London. And I said to the lady, who was still working, working behind the switchboard, the old-fashioned kind of switchboard still, <laughs> I said, I'll come see Cosmo. And she said, well, he doesn't come in every day. And when he does, he, you know, he doesn't come in till the afternoon. And I said, well, do you mind if I wait? So I sat on you know, a little plastic chair in the corner and waited, literally, as luck would have it, for only about, you know, 45 minutes and in walks Cosmo. And so he kind of looks at me half recognizing me and sort of points at me. And I said, Oh, hi Cosmo. I've come to see you. And he said, Oh, how can I help you? And he said, hold on a minute. And he sort of takes me into the post room, the mail room. And he said, how can I help you? And I said, I want to come and work for you. And he said, well, I'm not really doing anything at the moment. The clash aren't doing anything. I'm certainly not getting paid. And he said, hold on a minute. So he went out of the post room and came back in five minutes later and he said, do you want to work here? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And he says, okay, well, you start now. So literally I started working in the post room at Stiff Records and kind of made my business to be kind of the first one in, last one out every day because it was just a temporary job. But then after about six weeks, they said, hey, you know, do you want to make this permanent? So I I did. And it was fun. It was a mail, you know, a lot of Stiff's business was kind of mail order. So, you, you know, People would write in for records and posters yeah. and T-shirts and the other. And that at this time, this is when Madness had just started. Or, but no, this is their second album, sort of Baggy Trousers era Madness. And they were on the label. So Stiff were kind of riding the crest of a wave and um, doing very well. And Ian Jury was still, still doing well. Um, so it was a really good, fun place to work. So that's kind of where I got my start. And from that 
you know, after about six months, I got kind of promoted into being a plugger for, for going around to radio stations and with new releases, which I absolutely hated because I had to go in there. With, I was sort of the plugger's assistant. If you, there was only two of us. This record of the new, the injury record of the new excitement. And I'd walk in with something that was never, ever going to get played. <laughs> I used to hate going up to Radio One, which is the big national radio yeah. station. And um, sort of quite daunted by it, really. So as luck would have it, I, I'd been to Top of the Pops, actually, which was kind of, you know, the big TV show yeah. here. So, I, you know, we'd have to take bands to Top of the Pops or, or, or occasionally. And I'd become friendly the first time I went. I went there with a band called Temple Tudor. I don't know if that means anything to you. They had a big hit with a song called The Souls of a Thousand Men. And I met one of my, who, someone who would become one of my oldest friends, a DJ called Gary Crowley, who was there with another band called Department F. And so we became friendly and the singer of Department, Department S had just signed to Stiff Records. The singer from the band huh? decided that he wanted to do his own, his, the cover for his next single. He wanted to design. And I said, Oh, I'll help you. So we went in one Sunday and we did the cover for this single. It was nothing special. It turned out okay. And I think because I was no good at being a plugger, but Stiff quite liked having me hanging around. They said, oh, move into the art department. So I moved into the art department and that's where my sleeve designing career, as such as it is, began. And in those days, this is you know, pre-computer. So it was yeah. kind of a skill. You had to learn how to do it. Yeah. And going in cold, I really knew nothing. You know, I hadn't been to art school. I had to have no training whatsoever. And so... I think it kind of wore a bit thin having this guy hanging around. Even though I got on well with all the other people in the art department, we used to have a, a, you know, a proper giggle in there. But I wasn't really capable of doing anything. Yeah. Um, you know, learning slowly, but it was it was kind of hard to learn right at the deep end. So Neville Brody, who is a sort of a designer of some, or certainly is now of some notes. You know, he's had shows at the V&A and he's had a number of books written. And he had just started working on The Face magazine. Okay. He was a fourth designer, but The Face magazine was this hugely, in, in this country and in, and in Europe, it was a hugely, it's become iconic, but it was, yes. a, you know, really magazine, uh, fashion, music, where the two kind of collided. Yes. So it was, it was a very influential magazine. Neville was designing it. So he was looking for an assistant. So he said, you want to come and work for me, which I jumped at. And so I worked with Neville and that's where I really kind of learned the ropes and cut my teeth and learned how to, you know, the kind of the rudiments, if you like, of design, which was a great experience. And from that point, I, I sort of started to, you know, become friendly with Paul Weller, who was selling the jam at that point. The, I, I'd done a couple of little bits and pieces for him because I used to, sort of make a nuisance of myself, I guess, for want of a better word. I used to pop into the studio. Instead of popping up to Radio 1 yeah. with records, I used to, I knew the jam were like recording yes. five minutes. From, so I'd pop in to see Paul and just say, oh, you know, just as a fan, really. And he'd always be keen to know what I was up to, what I was doing. And so he kind of gave me a, a very early break and saying, oh, I'm doing this poetry book. Yes. From, um would you like to design it? And it's like, wow, okay. So I did that. And then at the tail end of the jam, he he kind of called me up and said, listen, do you want to come down to the studio? I want to have a chat with you. And so I went to his studio, which is, which is in Marble Arch in London. And he put the kettle on, 
one cup of coffee, yeah, and he says, oh, would you, you know, I'm starting this new band, the Style Council, do you want to do the sleeves? So, wow, okay, great, fantastic. So that kind of began my sort of career working with the Style Council and working with Paul, which kind of went on for about just shy of 30 years we ended up working together. And so that's, you know, from that point, I kind of, you know, this is beginning of the 80s and, so it was great to work with the Style Council and they really made you feel kind of part of their team. And yes. um, I say team, it was just a little gang really of us and we kind of socialised together and their studio in Marble Arch yeah. was their studio. So they kind of, that became like their, the clubhouse, if you like. So if you were in town, which I always was, you kind of just pop in and have a cup of tea, listen to some music and just have a little, you know, just fun with these guys. Yeah. And the 80s was kind of quite a close-knit, community of artists so it's quite easy to get work you know then i ended up doing some work with madness or met nick haywood who was in haircut 100 and ended up doing stuff for him and then ended up doing stuff i mean with george michael wham was still kind of a going concern at that point and but we'd see each other you know through mutual friends or go out for dinners and just, as i said it's kind of sort of tight-knit community then so you, they sort of would various bands camps if you like would yes, overlap yeah. so i'd become friendly with george and then kind of toward them sort of rushing through the the 80s here but towards the end of the 80s coming into 90 uh he had obviously had great success with wham then went on to have even greater success as a solo artist with mm. faith and we'd been out for dinner a bunch of us and he lived up the road from me and he dropped me off I was sort of the last one to be dropped off and literally as I got out of the car, I said, listen, I'd love to have a crack at doing your next album cover. And he goes, oh, Christ, I don't even know why I didn't think of that. Yeah, definitely you should do it. And that album was listening about prejudice. And we, so that was kind of like my first sort of project with George, which is a great one to, to, to start with. But we, yeah. you know, we had a lot of fun with that. And, and it was at that point where I decided that I wanted to give – I've been threatening it all through the ages, really. Oh, I love it. Los Angeles. I want to go and live there. I love Los Angeles. I want to mm. go and live there. But no one's doing anything about it. And George's manager at the time said, okay, Mr. Big Stuff, why don't you come out here? And I said, okay, well, if you get me a job, I'll come out there. And he goes, okay, come out. So I went out for a, to come out and stay with me and his family, which I did in this lovely, in the lovely house in Encino. And just by coincidence, George was staying out there at the same time so we you know we had a good little holiday together just kind of going out for lunch going to movies going out for dinner it was just really nice and it was that's when the two of us really bonded because mm. it was just kind of like the service because rob was working and his, his his family were very young and so we, we'd had a really good time together and you know obviously it was a good time because to be out there looking for a, a job because yeah. george is out and single were both number one in the states so it was like a, it was a good calling card anyhow so i did it i flew to new york from there to be interviewed for a job for a, with an east coast design company that had a small west coast office and they basically hired me on the spot they said well we you know we, we want to hire you but you've got to start in four weeks so basically that was it i came back home to london packed up you know and moved out to los angeles four weeks later and that was the sort of start of my time in los angeles so i spent about six years there and that was a really great experience and again you know uh, george moved out there i moved out there i think in november and george moved out in january um just again by coincidence but the two of us didn't 
really know anyone so we really kind of spent a lot of time in each other's company and just had a really good time just enjoying being in LA and yeah. being in the sunshine sort of 11 months a year wearing shorts and going swimming every day and it was just a really a really good fun time and it was whilst I was out there that you know, Los Angeles is very much an industry town and, and lots of my friends were involved in film in one way or another. There are writers or actors or directors and some just starting out, some, you know, established and you kind of get the bug because you just think, oh God, I'd like to have a bit of that. And it is because it is so much of an industry town. So I, that's when I first got interested in trying to develop films as a producer. Okay. And so with, not with any success, I might add, but it kind of gives you the bug and you get things moving a little bit and you think oh you know when you're naive and just starting out anything that you get that's kind of positive you know you think all oh, right i'm on my way here you know so um you know it was although it never came to anything it was a project that i was developing about there's a book called among the thugs which is about an american writer who becomes intrigued by soccer hooligans it was a, okay. a, a non and it was a really good book and i thought oh well this, this, this could make a great film and just through one contact or another, uh, Kiefer Sutherland uh, became interested. And this time, Kiefer was a kind of slightly a low ebb in his career. It was pre-24. And, um, but he was a super nice guy. And we sort of developed the project for a good few years together and kind of had moments where it was set up somewhere. And then all of a sudden, whoever signed that deal, whichever executive it was, was fired or left. So we uh, kind of go back to square. Yeah. Did like snakes and ladders. You got the ladder and then all of a sudden the next roll of the dice slip all the way down again because someone's left. So we had that. So it was a good way to kind of learn and cut my teeth. But that kind of gave me the bug, if you like. And again, being naive, you think, oh, we've got this one going. Let's get another one going. And I'd become friendly with Jude Law at that time. Jude uh, wasn't yet a movie star. He was just, you know, he was actually dating before he married Sadie Frost, who was an old friend of mine. And so... um, we kind of would spend some time together in Los Angeles and kind of thought, let's try and do something together. And out of that came Sleuth, which was a film that we actually did make. That's This is uh, 2007, and that was um, a remake of the original Sleuth that starred uh, Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier. And Michael Caine came on to play the Laurence Olivier role, and Jude Law played the young Mike younger Michael Caine role and the film was directed by Kenneth Branagh and we got the script screenplay written by Harold Pinter so that was a really fantastic experience sort of magical experience really because you're working with these greats and just it was everything you kind of hoped it would be and more you know Michael Caine was kind of an icon you know I was such a fan of his and you know to be in a situation where you're kind of working with him was unbelievable and he was so nice and charming and, and just really good fun I remember the first day we were shooting, I kind of sat quietly. You know, I didn't want to be the guy that kind of put his hand up every two minutes to say something. I kind of wanted to soak it all in again, yeah. be the first in the last one out and just kind of, it was my first film. So learn as much as I could. And I'd sit by the guy. There's like a little sound booth where you yes. have a monitor and you're shooting with headphones. Yeah. Um, and I remember on the first day, Michael Caine kind of, they do their take or whatever, and then Michael walks past and he sort of looks at me and he goes and says, how is, is, is that all right? And I sort of had to turn around and look and see who was behind me, you know. <laughs> and he, you know just, but he was such excellent company, he was great yeah. stories to tell. Kenneth Branagh, you know, such a great director and super smart, super funny, you know, just a really charming guy. And Jude, obviously, I'd already uh, was friends with. So it was a really lovely experience that. 
by this point, I'd moved back to England. It was kind of, yeah, I suppose I'd been back a few years already by the time we got this going. And I'd started working with Oasis at that point in time because I'd become friends with them when they'd come out to LA because of, because of my sort of uh, friendship with Paul Weller and working with Paul Weller. It kind yeah. of gave me a kind of an introduction to them. And they'd come out very early on literally to shoot. I think it was like a, a video for Supersonic or something, and their first single in America. So we met at the video shoot and kind of got on from the get-go. And so every time they'd breeze into town, I'd see them and I'd sort of bump into them in London when I'd come back to you know visit my parents and on a regular basis, and again through mutual friends. And then by this point in time, I think it was kind of the end of the 90s, and I all said, listen, would you like to design our next LP cover? And so, which I jumped at and it was, um, that was another great experience. I must've worked with them for the best part of 10 years, I think. Um, I think I did about four album covers for them, but they were just really good fun to be around. And yeah. just, you just spent 95% of the time with them just laughing because they were just really fun. And again, they really made you feel part of their little gang, you know, yeah. they, uh, they had a record, a rehearsal studio, which is also a recording studio out in High Wycombe, which is just outside of London, and we sort of nicknamed it kind of Wheeler End Gentlemen's Club because that's what it kind of felt like. We just, just you just kind of go out there and have a sandwich and throw insults at each other and <laughs> and just have a laugh. And it was it was you know it was very intimate. You know, you'd, again, as I say, they were very welcoming, but they no one would always say, oh, "Bring your camera up, bring your camera up," and I just had this little point and shoot, but. I would just go up there and take loads of snaps and you, you'd never take for granted because, you know, the, this is Oasis at the kind of, at their heights and, you know, they'd be playing, you know, you know as close as I am to, you know, this wall here or yes, this computer yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they'd be playing the same set, doing the same show that they would be, you know, a week later in front of 70, 80,000 people. Yes. And it, a really exciting time. Really, you know, the music was great. They were, you know, they were really good fun. It was just a really, you know, fun time to be doing what I was doing. And I was yes. very fortunate to sort of thrust into that position. So I was, you know, that time I was, things were good, you know, I was design wise, I was working with Paul Weller, who was, you know, having great success. I was working with Oasis, having great success, working with George Michael, who was yes. having great success. So it was a good time to be in music because music was really exciting and, um, so, yeah, so, as I said, I was very fortunate. And then out of that came, you know, was always very supportive. He knew I wanted to do more film stuff and TV stuff. And you know, he came to me post-Oasis after they'd split saying, oh, we'd like to do a documentary that kind of celebrates the 20th anniversary, as it was then, of us playing Nebworth. And I said, okay. And I, and I kind of went away. I said, I'd love to. And then I kind of thought about it. And I said, this is not a kind of hour long thing on TV. This deserves a sort of a, almost a theatrical feature. And I'd love the film Senna, which Asif Kapadia had directed and James Gay Reese had produced. And I said, this is the source of, let's try and do it like that, where it's all archive and try and make it a real, you know, like a, a film about a phenomenon, which is what, Oasis were yeah and you know not having done a documentary before I called James Gaylees who produced that and was at the time producing Amy I said listen do you want to have a go at doing this with me and he said absolutely and um we were very lucky to kind of chance upon Matt Whitecross who directed it and made a fantastic film called Supersonic which again it kind of ticked boxes with you know fans critics and the band everyone loved it and it's um still kind of 
holding its own on Netflix even as we speak. So that was a great experience. And then after that, or even at the same time of that, I I, I tried to do a bit of writing. And yes. so I've written a series called, it's called All You Need Is Me, which is basically, I, I love the, the series Entourage. And I thought, oh, you know, it'd be great to do a show like that, but about an English band or about music. Mm-hmm. And so I kept pitching it to a few people and I couldn't really get it right. And I thought, oh, you know, blimey, I'll just have a go at it myself. So I, you know, what's the worst that can happen? It'll be terrible. That's the yes. worst that can happen. So I ended up writing it. And that was the sort of the start of a boom that never really uh, manifested itself, but it was for short form. Uh, so it was written with well, a pilot was written as a half an hour pilot, but um, we got a deal with the company. It was a canal plus company, a studio plus that wanted it for a short form. So they wanted 10, 10 minute episodes and they greenlit it and we made it and it was just you know, about this british band that goes that hasn't been able to sort of cut a break anywhere but then all of a sudden it mirrored a story that i was involved with in while i was living in los angeles there was a george's manager who i mentioned earlier who i stayed with and was good friends with he parted ways with george after george uh, had a court case with sony music because rob had thought that as soon as george gets out of his deal with sony I could sign him to Hollywood Records, which was a, an offshoot of Disney. On the back of that idea, he set up a kind of, he got a deal with Hollywood Records, which is an office on the lot, his own record label. He also got a, a first look deal with Disney. And so he was kind of off to the races. The only thing he didn't take into account was the fact that George fired him. <laughs> that wasn't part of his plan. He then says to me, oh my God, you know, I need an act. You know, I've got this deal, but I need an act. And Rob, was so kind of far removed from the coalface, you know, that he didn't where to find a new act. So he said, can you, can you help at all? So I rang my friend, Gary, the same guy that I met at Top of the Pops all those years ago, who's a DJ on a radio station, but he also was doing A&R for Island Records in the UK. And I said to Gary, I said, is there any, you got any scraps off your table? Rob's looking for an act. And he goes, well, no, it's all very quiet. And then he said this, to me he said but there's always gavin and gavin turned out to be who i knew was gavin rossdale and gavin rossdale was been in a number of bands and so i met with gavin's manager who also i knew when i came back to london and he gave me a kind of demo tape and i thought wow this sounds pretty good so i called rob and i said listen i've got this thing here that might be right up your street i'm not going to tell you any more but let me play it you know i'll play it to you when i get back and so I played it to him. He got super excited about it. He signed them. And Gavin's bands, who were called Future Primitive, changed their name to Bush, and they went on to sell 8 million copies of their yeah. first album just in the US alone. They became this monster, monster hit band in the US. And so the idea for this series kind of mirrored that. It was contemporary, but it was about a band that can't kind of break for whatever reason. Yeah. Then all of a sudden... They get this call from this LA manager that kind of says, I need an act. And off they go. Anyway, we made the show and it was great. And we got some you know, good cameos in it. Like Elvis Costello and James Corden and, and um, Pete Wentz from Fallout Boy. And it, was, it, was, it turned out all right, even though I say so myself. The only problem was the platform that we had for it, Studio Plus, shut down. So, oh, yeah. yeah, after six months and they couldn't get a deal for it. It hadn't got shown. And then the the platform shut down. So then I spent lockdown trying to get the rights back from them and eventually did. And then we recut it as 
five twenty minute episodes, and we managed to get it sold to ITVX, which is kind of the ITVX uh, yes. here. So that finally found a home. So that was great to finally get a home for it. And then sort of just fast forwarding up to you know the last couple of years where I've been working on the Wham film, yes. and um, again that came about with Andrew had his book coming out, and I'd known these guys as I said from the eighties. Yeah. And Andrew had his memoir coming out about five years ago, it must be now. And he said, oh, just before we had lunch, and he said, I'd really like to do a documentary or something to tie in just to promote my book. And again, I, I, I said, fantastic, I'd love to do it. And then I went away and I thought a little bit more about it. And I thought, well, this, again, this is a phenomenon like the Oasis story. It's, it's the Oasis story that we covered in the film was two and a half years from them signing off on the doll to having two million ticket applications for um network the the wham story again four years from since then since they left school to playing their last gig at wembley stadium so it's um it's quite uh you know conquering the whole world in along the way in those four years so i said to andrew i said, said listen let's not we won't have time to do this to promote your book let's just do this as a proper feature film a feature length documentary and again i'm you know i then reached out to john batsek who is an academy award-winning producer and because i wanted to work with him i didn't know him but i said would you be up for doing this with me and he said absolutely and then next call was to netflix so they were up for it so it was great we got off starting blocks really quick and we got chris smith on board to direct it very quickly and then it, it you know these films take a long time to kind of get right okay. and to and all the archive it's a, you know it's it's like finding you know numerous needles in numerous haystacks sometimes mm-hmm. but we got there in the end and ended up making a film that turned out really really well and yeah. audiences loved with as i said before whether they're young or they're old or new fans or old fans it really kind of touched the nerve because i think the film is really about friendship and yeah. that's what kind of re- with people you didn't necessarily have to be the world's biggest george michael fan or the world's biggest wham fan it's the fact that it's kind of like a buddy movie and that's what really resonates with people. And you can't argue with those songs, you know, it's hit after hit after hit because George was such a good friend. It was just nice to, I wanted to do something that kind of celebrated him and, you know, and I, I hope, you know, all the way through the making of the film, I was thinking, oh, would he like this? Would he like this? Would he like this? And because I'd shown him supersonic, you know, sadly, just before he passed away, we spent, together um before supersonic had come out and he absolutely loved it you know and it really kind of struck a nerve with him from that i kind of thought well he'd have no problem with a similar style treatment of a film being made so um yeah so that was where we are and that sort of brings us up to date really up to date (laughs) with all the artists that you've done design work for their sleeves or the album sleeves have they always let you go away and do your thing or has it been a collaborative discussion of what can we put in or was it different for each artist? Yeah, no, I think it is different for each artist and sometimes you'll be given a completely blank canvas and you'll present a selection of ideas. In other cases, the artist will know exactly what he wants, so um, he or she wants. So it's a mixture of both and you know, I'm happy to work any which way really because yeah. sometimes it's nice to be given as i say a blank canvas other times it's nice to kind of be able to produce something that the artists have seen in their mind's eye and to be able to deliver that there's a satisfaction to that as well paul weller was very um he'd think about what the sleeve would look like before he'd made the record 
you know, oh. he was always kind of up ahead like that. And it, those relationships were very collaborative. George Michael, the same, you know, George would sit with you wanting to do it. You know, he'd sit at the computer and kind of say, I'll oh, just move that a little bit, move that, go down, change the car, you know, let's try that, let's try this. And mm-hmm. you're very meticulous in, in the detail. The devil is in the details, they say. And when you were working at that agency in Los Angeles, what was it an advertising agency? What type of agency no, was it? No, no, no. It was a design company that just did music. Yeah, no, that, that, that kind of gave me the opportunity to do other things that I hadn't, you know, and work with artists that I hadn't worked with before. I mean, I did some work for, you know, work for Don Henley. Um, yes. did some, like, a lot of it was tour merchandise. It would be like tour books, T-shirts, this, that, and the other. Okay. Lenny Kravitz, who was great. Um, Jimmy Buffett, who's you know, sadly passed away. I'd, I'd never heard it. Coming from England, I'd never even heard of Jimmy Buffett. And so we had a meeting with him, and so I had a meeting with him and the guy that ran the merchandising company. And he was so lovely and charming. And I was just kind of quite blown away by, by him, really, because he was just like this guy. And he had his own airplanes and he'd fly himself to gigs and i thought wow who is this guy <laughs> you know it's <laughs> this is only had this kind of look of someone that was living his life on his face you know it was yes, it, yes, yes. i only worked there for, i think it was you know six or eight months um before i kind of went freelance again but oh. it was a, it was a it was a good time because i yeah one of the things that my sort of big takeaways from that time there is that um the the, the company in in new york was designing the LP sleeve for David Bowie's Tin Machine. And in this is the days before things were done on computers, still the early 90s, so it'd still be flat artwork. And so I remember being sent some, because David Bowie was out in Los Angeles just by coincidence. So I had to have a meeting with him to show him these kind of layouts for the Tin Machine album. Again, he was so charming and friendly, and you know, we just had—it was just the, the two of us, and just had such a nice kind of hour or whatever it was yeah. together. Or, and he was just a real, you know, very charming, charming guy. And so that was um, one of the big moments for working for that company, Rhino Designs. When you said you decided to, you got the bug of being in Los Angeles and doing television production. And, you know, in the beginning you had thought, okay, you're on the go and you are moving forward. Every time you got up that ladder for that first, that first movie you were doing, you mentioned with Kiefer Sullivan. So you went up the ladder and you exec got fired. What kept you going to say, okay, we're going to keep on going, keep on going and keep on going. Oh, was there ever a moment where he was like, ah, I can't do this anymore? Not really. I think it was, was you know, because things overlapped. So I, I'd started developing a couple of projects with Jude Law at the same time I was doing okay. a thing with Keith Sutherland. So, it, it, you know, you kind of think, oh, well, listen, you you kind of keep going because at that point, Kiefer was happy to keep going. So it's just yeah. like, okay, well, if he's happy, I'm happy. And, you know, we just kind of developed it and kept on going and hired writers and this, that and the other and it kind of kept it going. But you do get to on that, we got to a point where we just thought, you know what? And I was relieved when, after I think it was about seven years, we just kind of said, you know what? It hasn't developed enough time in that time to kind of warrant keep, to keep yeah. throwing money at it. But I wasn't, you know, as I said, I was sort of slightly relieved at that point because you just, in your heart, you just thought, oh, hold on, this doesn't seem, this isn't clicking yes. for whatever reason. I think we were just too early with a project like that because then the, the last guy that did a draft 
for us on the script was a guy called Nick Love, who then went on to do Football Factory, was a massive hit, you know, about football hooligans. And you know, he's a good guy, Nick, and a very good writer, so, so deservedly so. Um, but we were just perhaps a bit too early with the idea or whatever, you know, it's uh, all these things are about timing yes. for sure. But yes. it was always good to have another couple of projects to still be working on. And because I was designing, it wasn't like it was my full time job. It was just something that I guess was a kind of glorified hobby, really. Yes. I so, uh, and I love your story in the beginning about reaching out to the guy from the Clash. What you mentioned? Yes, right. The Clash. Yeah. Cosmo Vinyl. Yeah. Cosmo Vinyl. Because, you know, the thing is that people always see other people randomly, like, in inverted commas, who might be of influence or famous or whatever. And I was like, oh, should I speak to them? Shouldn't I speak to them? And I, oh, no, you know, I'm not going to speak to them. And I'm very much like you. I'll be like, oh, there's Simon or there's whomever and or Paul or George, whomever. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say hello and just speak to them like they're a person, not like they're away from me. Because a lot of people perceive people of influence or famous people as that they're separate or are they different. They still bleed red. So I'm like you yeah. in the sense that if I see someone up, we spoke about this before previously, and it was reaffirmed to me when we spoke earlier, that it's just an affirmation that if you see someone, they're there for a reason, just talk and just see where it goes. It might go nowhere, and it might just be a nice yeah. interaction at that time. We it ask might... someone something, or you say hi, or whatever. It was yeah. the worst that can happen. They'll exactly. say, no, or no, I'm busy, or whatever it is. It's not going to be... Um... I remember years and years ago, <laughs> bumping into George Harrison in South Moulton Street in London, just seeing him walking down some massive Beatles fan. And that, that this is in the early 80s. And I remember he was just kind of looking in a shop window and I thought, oh, she's I haven't even got a pen, you know, to get exhausted. Yes. So I went into like a chemist. Yes. I said, I borrow a pen. And I said, yeah, so and then I sort of kind of said, oh, hi, George. I said, you know, I gave him a piece of paper and a pen. And he said, I said, do you mind? And he says, listen, I'm sorry. I just don't do that sort of thing anymore because it attracts too much attention. Okay. And I thought, well, okay. I thought, fair enough, yes. you know, good on you. And I, I still had the experience of kind yes. of saying hi to George Harrison, but it, exactly. it, it wasn't like, he wasn't rude. Exactly. I wasn't rude. It was just like, you know, listen, I'm not entitled to it. You know, he's not like he, you know, he owes me that. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like a nice, it was a nice interaction anyway. In short, just kind of agreeing with you. What's, yeah. What harm is there? There's no, the thing I've seen in the past where people kind of get a little bit abrasive with people or if they start wanting things signed because they're going to sell it, then I can sort of see, you know, I've been in situations where I was once with Noel somewhere and, he just signed something. Someone had given him a guitar plate to sign. Like a, yes. You know, it wasn't like this guy was going to keep it because he was a massive fan. He was just going to sell it. And then, because Noel just kind of was walking and just signed Noel. And he goes, no, no, put your surname on there, mate. Put your surname on there. And it's like, off you go, mate. No. Yeah. You know, it's not, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. here to run your business. I'm not here exactly. to run your business for you. You know, exactly. it's, it's, it's different. I think, you know, there was a time when, you know, when I was a kid, I loved collecting autographs, but the, mm-hmm. it was because you did it because you were a fan. Now, I think lots of those things have become kind of businesses for people. And I can yeah. see why people don't sign stuff anymore. Because if it's just going to turn up on eBay, why why would you do it? If someone's a fan, then great. But if it's just someone wanting to sell it or whatever. But yeah, I don't know how we got onto that. Oh, we got onto that. Just, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. always worth asking, always, always worth saying hi to exactly. someone. As a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? What message can I give? Brush your teeth every morning and every evening. That's the earlier that, that's... Uh, <laughs> no, listen, I've been very lucky. And, yeah. you know, thank God it's been, you know, I've been lucky to be able to do something that I love and, you know, meet great people along the way and, 
yeah, everything has its dips and, and you know, some things sometimes, you know, you're more productive and busier than others. And, but at the same time, there's a real luxury and kind of just working for yourself and trying to make things happen. You've got to, you know, I think it's perseverance is a kind of key word, really. It, certainly in film and television, there is something to be said. Just if you want something, just kind of reach for it and reach a little bit further if you can. 